G'day, mate. Forty here. I've got some breaking news for you. Christianity is not a suicide cult. Christianity is not a death warrant. Have you noticed how upset the mainstream media is by governors Ron DeSantis and uh, that that bloke uh, Abbott in, in Texas, Republican governors who are sending illegal migrants to sanctuary cities? So that makes common sense to me. All right. So. If you're an illegal migrant, why would you not want to be in a sanctuary city? If you're in a Republican state, uh, there there aren't as many sanctuary cities around. So the media is just so angry with with this story. Wall Street Journal: Transfer of migrants have Democratic leaders scrambling for solutions. Florida sent planes of migrants to Martha's Vineyard, the latest in an escalating battle between GOP and Democratic-led states. I mean, they even sent illegal migrants outside the home of Kamala Harris. So Republicans, by and large, are pretty strict against illegal immigration. Democrats are much more welcoming of it. So why not send illegal immigrants to places that will welcome them? But uh, I notice just this uniform moral outrage in the news media that uh, people are being used as pawns. So he's outside the Beltway, which is a favorite center-left website of mine. And there's all this outrage that how unchristian this is. You know, how can people who self-identify as Christians do this? And uh, outside the Beltway says, well, if GOP politicians don't like to be referred to as semi-fascist, they should treat a group of people like subhuman pawns. So allowing illegal immigrants to flood into your community is not treating those people as subhuman pawns. It's only if you then offload the illegal immigrants to a Democratic-run city, then you're treating illegal immigrants as subhuman pawns. So the Biden administration has lax border security policies, and that's not treating people as subhuman pawns. Why is it that when you have illegal immigrants in one city, all right, let's say a close to the border city, that's not treating people like subhuman pawns, but you move them from that city to a Democrat-run city further north, then suddenly you're treating people like subhuman pawns. Why? Christianity is not a death warrant. It's not a suicide cult. Christians have a right to try to survive and to thrive. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, finally a happy story for once. Outbursts of irrepressible joy erupted throughout the exclusive island community of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts last night. For hundreds of years, Martha's Vineyard had suffered from the soul-crushing effects of its own whiteness. Island residents understood there was only one cure. They badly needed diversity. In fact, they often said so. But despite their very best efforts over many years, diversity never came to Martha's Vineyard. It was tragic. Imagine an 18th century British frigate adrift on the high seas with no limes. Sailors slowly going mad, convulsing, dying excruciating deaths from scurvy. That was Martha's Vineyard. Except it wasn't lime juice they lacked. They had plenty of that because you can't make a gin and tonic without it. What Martha's Vineyard lacked was diversity, which is to say strength. Martha's Vineyard was a very weak place. As of yesterday morning, that island was 89% white, monochromatic and utterly homogenous. Nearly everybody there was a rich Democrat. 80% voted for Joe Biden. The median home price was over a million dollars. And then, in a single blessed moment, everything changed. Relief arrived from an unlikely source. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, having made his own state a paradise, decided to help other states desperately in need. So yesterday, DeSantis sent 50 illegal aliens, most of them from Venezuela, 
to the Martha's Vineyard Airport. They traveled from San Antonio to the Florida Panhandle and finally to their new home on Martha's Vineyard. CBS Boston reports that after landing, the group wandered about three and a half miles from the airport into town, thereby instantly improving it. You can imagine the unrestrained jubilation on Martha's Vineyard tonight. Long-suffering Islanders finally rescued from their own oppressive whiteness. In fact, let's go there now to check in on the celebrations. Well, that's not expected. Obviously, there's been a mistake. Now, our, our producers are telling us there are no technical problems. That is, in fact, a live shot from Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts right now. But where were the weeping, joyful crowds? Where was the champagne and the ticker tape? We expected Times Square on VJ Day. What we got was a cemetery at midnight. What? But maybe it's not so confusing. Maybe things aren't as they seem. Our first clue is Barack Obama. Barack Obama is a part-time resident of Martha's Vineyard. Obama is also, of course, as you know, the country's greatest proponent of diversity. For years, Obama earnestly told us that immigrants were better than Americans. They were holy. They make our country strong. America is and always has been a nation of immigrants. Throughout our history, immigrants have come to our shores in wave after wave from every corner of the globe. Every one of us unless we're Native American, has an ancestor who was born somewhere else. That's what makes America special. That's what makes us strong. The basic idea of welcoming immigrants to our shores is central to our way of life. It is in our DNA. So that was basically the whole presidency right there for eight years, Obama hectoring us about diversity. But he didn't just talk about it. He spent his two years in office making certain that places like Des Moines, Iowa and Portland, Maine became much less white than they previously had been, because as he so often told us, whiteness is bad. It's a disease. So we recall being a little confused when we read that Barack Obama had spent $12 million to buy an eight-bathroom oceanfront property on Martha's Vineyard, which is one of the whitest places on earth. Really? Martha's Vineyard? Why not Baltimore or Gary, Indiana? Is there really no real estate left in Detroit for the Obama family compound? There's got to be. What's going on here? We didn't know. And then in 2019, Michelle Obama explained it to us. Listen to this. We grew up in the period, as I write, of called white flight. Yeah. That as families like ours, upstanding families like ours, you know, who were doing everything we were supposed to do and better, um, as we moved in, uh, white folks moved out because they were afraid of what our families represented. And I always stop there when I talk about this out, out in the world because, you know, I want to remind white folks that Y'all were running, running from us, and you're still running <laughs> because we're no different than the immigrant families that are moving in, the families in Pilsen, the, the, the families that are coming from other places to try to do better. And so, yeah, I, felt, I feel a sense of injustice. So there she was reminding white folks who badly needed reminding that the Obamas are, quote, no different from the immigrant families moving in because white people hate them, too. They're still running, as she just said. So that explained it to us. The Obamas were, in fact, despised immigrants. So when they moved to a $12 million seaside compound on Martha's Vineyard, the point is not to live in luxury with other rich people. No, obviously, the point is to diversify Martha's Vineyard, to strike a blow for justice. That made sense to us, and we felt better. 
But then last night happened, and we started to rethink our assumptions about the Obamas, about a lot of things. Because a plane load of highly diverse immigrants arrived on Martha's Vineyard to join the Obamas. But the Obamas didn't welcome them. There was not a word from Barack or Michelle Obama. Barack wasn't waiting at the airport to greet the diversifiers with flowers. He didn't issue a statement of congratulations. He didn't invite a single Venezuelan to his home. How come? Could it be that Barack Obama isn't really actually in real life in favor of diversity at all? Could it be that Barack Obama strongly prefers blonde soul cycle moms in Lululemon to sweaty third world campesinos in dirty work pants? Could it be? We can't say. But we can tell you that if you want to find out what people really think, go ahead and ignore what they say and watch how they live. And by that measure, the one that matters, Barack and Michelle Obama are every bit as bigoted as any board member at any restricted country club in the Deep South, assuming those still exist. Those people? They're not dating my daughter, I can tell you that. So in other words, we learned this week that Barack Obama really is a racist and not in the way you've always assumed. Obama may hate white people, he certainly seems to, but he also demands to live around them and only them. But the Obamas, to be fair, are not alone in this. His friends at the news networks in Washington, New York, and Los Angeles feel exactly the same way because they're exactly the same sort of people. CNN, for example, spent the day interviewing people connected in some way to Martha's Vineyard. Turns out that precisely none of them were excited about the plane load of Venezuelans. One of them, the state rep for the island, even blamed this show for the sudden blessed surge in diversity. Watch this. Ron DeSantis and Republicans might want to play political games with people's lives. I believe that's incredibly inhumane to be using women and children and families as a political pawn that you're going to talk about on Tucker Carlson and pretend to be tough on immigration. Wow. So see if you can follow the argument here. When penniless illegal aliens show up in Brownsville, Texas, one of the poorest cities in the United States, they are noble strivers. They're looking for a better life in this country, and we applaud them. Good luck in Brownsville, newly arrived immigrants. But when these very same people jump the moat and get a free flight to Martha's Vineyard, it's something else entirely. It is, as the state rep just told you, quote, playing political games with people's lives because it's dangerous. These immigrants could wander into a clam bake by accident or worse, much worse. Earlier today, CNN anchor John Berman, who's got fired, by the way, this morning, this morning, John Berman interviewed noted filmmaker Ken Burns. Burns is famous, but sad, exactly the kind of middle-aged prestige hound who spends an awful lot of time looming around Martha's Vineyard looking for other famous people. Burns has a new film out that blames the United States, of all countries on Earth, for the Holocaust. Now that the World War II generation has passed, Ken Burns can do that. There's no chance angry veterans will show up at his house and beat him with their canes for besmirching the memory of their closest friends who died in their early 20s fighting the Nazis. So Ken Burns can say whatever he wants, and many will believe him. So this morning, Burns played the role of Holocaust expert on CNN. And you know what Ken Burns has discovered? Ken Burns has discovered that Ron DeSantis sending illegal aliens to Martha's Vineyard is pretty much exactly what Hitler did. Pretty much exactly. Watch this. All of your documentaries are about history. Yeah. But all of them also make you think about where we are exactly. now. And we woke up to the news this morning that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida sent two plane loads of migrants uh, to Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts, including kids and whatnot. And I'm not saying this is not a one-for-one. One. This is not a parallel here in any way. But it does address some of the same themes 
This is the uh, coming straight out of the authoritarian playbook. This is what's so uh, disturbing about DeSantis, is to use human beings, to weaponize human beings for a political purpose. Ooh, you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? It's literally, literally just like the Holocaust. Edgar Town is Dachau. Oak Bluffs is Treblinka. The horrors, this is genocide. And it may be, but of course everything is relative. Martha's Vineyard may be a modern-day death camp, but compared to where illegal aliens usually go, it doesn't look that bad. Let's compare this for fun. On your screen, you will see images recently shot in America's border towns, which are now completely overrun under Joe Biden's immigration policy. You will notice, if you look carefully, chaos, violence, and filth. Okay, now we will take you to Martha's Vineyard. It's hellish, perhaps, but in a very different way. Families eating together on balconies overlooking the water, women doing their shopping in a quaint little town on bicycles, Couples strolling along the boardwalk. Sailboats. Doesn't look that bad. Ah, but that's exactly the problem, the media told us today. Martha's Vineyard may seem like one of the richest places on the planet, but somehow, somehow, there aren't enough social services there. It's bereft of social services, unlike Brownsville. As CBS News put it, quote, Martha's Vineyard is not an urban metropolitan area with a robust social services infrastructure. There's no Justice Department immigration court where the migrants can attend asylum hearings. There's no ICE field office where migrants can check in <laughs> now. But you see, Martha's Vineyard is in, quote, an urban area with a, quote, robust social services in infrastructure that other people get to deal with. And honestly, that's true. And it's kind of the whole idea. That's why DeSantis sent the illegal aliens to Martha's Vineyard. People who make and advocate for certain policies should at some point have to live with those policies. But until now, they haven't had to. Bill Gates goes to Martha's Vineyard. So does Oprah, James Taylor, Spike Lee, Amy Schumer, and many more. And all of them, everyone is a much better person than you are because they support diversity. And now for the first time, they're gonna have some diversity. But it's just the beginning. Martha's Vineyard will need many, many more illegal aliens, tens of thousands more until the island is no longer majority white. Only then can it be a good place. Yet at the same time, the people who currently go to Martha's Vineyard are going to have to keep going there. They can't run away to somewhere else. That would be immoral. It would be, as Michelle Obama has told us, white flight. Now, massive demographic change will obviously make Martha's Vineyard a very different sort of place, but that's okay. Change is good. Anyone who fears change is racist. We know that for sure because they've told us that for years. So where, you may ask, will all these new people live on such a small island? Simple. First, they can occupy Barack Obama's compound. There is no reason Obama needs that much space. Nobody needs that much space. You could probably fit a dozen immigrant families in Barack Obama's pool house and another five or six in the pantry. Keep going. Build a soccer field on the lawn, an outdoor goat barbecue by the back door, and bingo, you've got affordable housing. But it won't be enough. The vineyard is going to need to construct shanty towns for all these new people. But we can't call them shanty towns. Obviously, that's demeaning. So we're going to call them townships after Obama's favorite country. And then we're going to give them dignified names that suggest some kind of victory over adversity. Mandela, Cesar Chavezville, Kamala Apopolis. Now, each side, each one, will put a plaque with that famous Emma Lazarus poem, just so that everybody knows that these are not ordinary favelas. These are moral victories. As the signs say in Martha's Vineyard to this day, no human is illegal. Love is love. That's just science. But speaking of science, 
What will the environmental impact of all this new development be? That's a massive concern on Martha's Vineyard, and for good reason. But in this case, it's not a concern. None of these new townships will have running water or electricity. So by definition, they will be carbon neutral. It'll be part of the green revolution. Local law enforcement services won't be strained either because they won't be needed. None of these new arrivals will be bound by local laws. Why would they be? They ignored federal law to get here. There's no reason that they should have to observe the vineyards ordinances against, say, drunk driving or defecating in public. And just in case there are still vineyarders who think they have the right to protect what they own, think again, people. We refer you to the case of the fascist McCloskey family in St. Louis who once tried that, tried to defend what's theirs, and they got indicted for it. So that's not allowed. But we can't fully trust you. Somebody's going to have to go door to door to make sure that not one person on Martha's Vineyard keeps a gun at home because self-defense can be tempting even for Democratic voters. There's a lot of change for the vineyard and they're going to need to start work soon. The summer season begins on Memorial Day. So when Amy Schumer shows up to her place in June, she better be ready to find an illegal alien family using her bath towels. Yes, she will. And let's hope she doesn't complain about it because as Joe Biden often reminds us, illegal immigration is a gift. Guess what? They're the reason why the legal as well as undocumented are the reason why our society is functioning, the reason why our economy is growing. We don't talk about that. We stand up and act like it's a burden. It is not a burden. It's a gift. Hear that? Hear that? Illegal immigration is not a burden. It's a gift, Dumbo. So Martha's Vineyard received an enormous gift last night. Think of it like a perpetual Christmas, but noisier. And you can't beat the timing, as Karine Jean-Pierre just reminded us today at the White House, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. Perfect! So roll with it, Martha's Vineyard. Things are about to change a lot for you. But that's okay. Radical destructive change is the essence of anti-racism. And as you've told us so many times, you support anti-racism. Lest we need to remind you. And in any case, pretty soon you'll have no memory of the way things were before. Martha's Vineyard will feel and look just like El Paso, and that will all seem normal to you. What's El Paso like, you wonder? Haven't been there lately? Okay. Well, here's some recent pictures. I want to show you an exact look of what we're seeing out here. We're right next to the Greyhound bus station, where, as we've been telling you for days now, migrants, mostly a large group of Venezuelans, have been using this area as a temporary camp and a home. Now take a look at this video from earlier this morning and overnight, where you can see migrants have set up sleeping arrangements on cardboard and mattresses in this same spot here outside the bus station. D'Agostito and other city leaders said their number one priority is to avoid people on the streets. But since CBP has been so overwhelmed with the large numbers coming in, they have been forced to release as such. As more and more people have been on the streets in recent days, sanitation and cleanliness have become a concern out here. We're not seeing any porta-potties or temporary toilets, showers or sinks, and as you can imagine, the smell is beginning to add up. Oh, wow. Look, El Paso is Venezuelans too. And that's why tonight it's redolent of diversity, brimming with the gift of illegal immigration. That'll be Edgartown, Massachusetts soon. But we can't stop there. Why would we? If we're really going to make Martha's Vineyard look like the world, the people who vacation on Martha's Vineyard have created for the rest of us, we're going to need to import graffiti artists and armed robbers and subway rapists and the drug addicted homeless community. Many, many of those and their tents. Why should they be living outside your house when they could be camped on Barack Obama's $12 million lawn? That seems fair. Why isn't it fair? 
Well, unfortunately, we don't expect Obama to see it the same way. He is a racist, as we've established, and so apparently are his fellow liberals. They are outraged by the idea of illegal aliens near their island vacation homes. Before long, they'll be tweeting in solidarity with the Vineyard's white community. Hashtag, I stand with Martha's Vineyard. Little island emojis in their bios. Hilarious. That could actually happen, by the way, because in the end, liberals really do stand with Martha's Vineyard against everyone else. And honestly, on some level, we can kind of understand why. If we're being honest, we don't want to see Martha's Vineyard trashed. We're Americans. And Martha's Vineyard is a beautiful place. It's a sin to destroy beautiful things, always. Unfortunately, and this really is the point, Martha's Vineyard is one of a dwindling number of beautiful places left in our country. Martha's Vineyard is what most of America once was, not all that long ago. Small, socially cohesive, orderly, safe, with traditional human-centered architecture and big stretches of nature, unspoiled by industrial wind farms and dollar stores. The people who live in Martha's Vineyard now didn't build any of that. The people who did build it are long gone, along with the attitudes and values that made it possible. The people who live there now just came for the nostalgia, and all that's left, really, are the buildings and the beaches. But still, you'd hate to see them wrecked. On the other hand, at this point, we may have no choice. No sane country would allow millions of foreign nationals to walk across its borders illegally and then immediately give them government benefits in exchange for mocking our rule of law. No one would ever do that. It is suicide. Over time, it will destroy the United States. Everyone can see that, no matter what they say. But the people who vacation on Martha's Vineyard don't care. They are making this possible. They support it. They vote for it. They fund it. And they can do all of that because they are so insulated from the effects of Joe Biden's lunatic immigration policies that none of it matters to them. The country collapses. Big deal. They live on an island. But to the rest of us, it is a big deal. This is our country. We were born here. We plan to die here. We have nowhere else to go. And we don't want to live in a slum. Maybe Martha's Vineyard will finally understand. A bombshell new report from Miranda Devine shows that space Facebook spied on Americans who dared to question the legitimacy of the last election, which in many ways was obviously. OK, pretty good uh, rant there from Tucker Carlson. So I'm looking at an article on the center left website outside the Beltway. DeSantis's Martha Vineyard stunt. Well, how is this a stunt any more than 80, 90, 95, 99% of politics. When we got Obamacare, wherein we transferred $2 trillion from productive citizens to much less productive citizens, how was that not a stunt? Right, when you raise taxes on a certain group, or you lower taxes on a certain group, or you create intricate loopholes so that people with really sharp uh, lawyers can uh, get around the law. How is that not a stunt? How, how is almost all of politics not a stunt? When you send people off to fight in a stupid war like the war in Iraq in, in 2003, how is that not a stunt? George W. Bush thought that invading Afghanistan in 2001 and invading Iraq in 2003 would be good for Republicans' political fortunes, and they did prosper initially. Republicans did far better than expected in the 2002 midterm elections than George W. Bush won re-election in 2004. 
And so he went into these foreign invasions and had had thousands of Americans maimed, thousands of Americans died, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and Afghans died. But uh, George W. Bush, he got some initial political capital. Now, how is that not a stunt? All right, John F. Kennedy with the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's facing midterm elections where the Democrats are looking quite shaky. The Democrats are coming under fire as being weak on communists. So John F. Kennedy plays a role in amping up the Cuban Missile Crisis, placing the entire world at risk so that Democrats can do better in the, 2000, in the 1962 midterm elections. How is that not a stunt? Uh, Joe Biden is risking World War III by sending tens of billions of dollars into Ukraine. The Biden administration never had any interest in securing a peace deal in Europe. The Biden administration never had any interest in reaching some kind of arrangement between Russia and Ukraine and NATO so that we would not have this war. So how is the Biden administration fueling, subsidizing, pumping up a war having no interest in reducing the war, having no interest in reaching a peace deal between these warring factors. Joe Biden and his administration are deliberately risking World War III because Joe Biden had really low approval ratings, and this helps him to look tough. And his approval ratings are going up, right? By pulling this political stunt, Joe Biden may well save the Democrats from being wiped out in the midterm elections. How is that not a stunt? Right, what politics is is not a stunt? Right? There is a stunt element to virtually all of politics. So calling what Ron DeSantis is doing a, a stunt is like saying that uh, water flows downhill. All right, Stephen L. Taylor, political scientist, writing here, this is just playing crass political games with human beings. So how about not enforcing the border? How is that not a stunt? Right? Not securing the border. How is that not a stunt? How about inviting illegals in and flooding them with uh, social welfare spending? How is that not a stunt? Like, how is transferring $2 trillion with Obamacare from more productive to less productive American citizens, how is that not just playing crass political games with human beings? Like, what part of politics is not playing crass political games with human beings? When, when they set a speed limit or gun control laws or abortion laws, how is that not a crass political game with, with human beings? So Stephen L. Taylor writes, since Venezuela is one of the countries that the American right uses as a great boogeyman. See, it's only the American right who thinks that Venezuela is a boogeyman. All right. It's only people on the right who think that there's something wrong with Venezuela's dictatorial regime. It's only people on the right who think that the left wing socialist takeover of Venezuela is not a good thing. Like normal, healthy people. They don't have a problem with how Venezuela has been destroyed and how millions of Venezuelans are starving and this once moderately prosperous nation has been reduced to abject poverty, right? Right-thinking people have no problem with that. It's only people on the right who, who use Venezuela as a great a boogeyman. 
It seems odd to pick on potential refugees from the country that is very much experiencing an economic disaster. But why is it odd? Right. That you point out that Venezuela is run by leftists who have ruined the country. Why does it then follow that you would welcome in tens of thousands of illegal immigrants from that country? Right. Venezuelans have turned Venezuela into a shithole country. Why is it then in my interest to bring those people into this country? Why don't they get their act together down in Venezuela? Right. I think the Venezuelan government has been an absolute disaster for about 20 years now. It's only gotten worse over the last six years. And I still don't want to bring them into my country. I mean, what, what's uh, so, so terribly complicated about that? No one's talking about vaccine mandates anymore, but they still exist and are still destroying people's lives with less justification than ever. The vaccine doesn't really work and it hurts people. Whoa, whoa, and yet whoa. still, whoa, New York whoa, City whoa, whoa, this whoa. year whoa. has fired more Disavow. than 1,400 city employees who refused to take the government shot. The city pressured many more employees to resign. Okay, I don't uh, really care one way or another about that. So let's go back to immigration. The main incentive for immigrants coming to the U.S. is they are seeking better lives for themselves and their families. People in the media, people on the left and Democratic politicians and many moderate Republicans think this is such a strong argument. Hey, the reason that people would rob you, they're only seeking a better life, bro. The reason that people participate in breaking and entering, they're only seeking a better life. The reason that some people would turn you over and rape your backside is they're only seeking a better life. They're experiencing a sexual emergency, right? The reason we do everything, the reason that people rape and murder, break and enter, rob, torture people, is because that they are seeking better lives for themselves and for their families. So the odds that uh, sanctuary cities are primary drivers of migrant flows is absurd. Oh, it's absurd to think that the more you subsidize bad illegal behavior, the more you get of it. And the more you discourage and penalize bad illegal behavior, then the less you get of it. That's just absurd. Right. I mean, poor Laponius, all right? He's, he's come to the realization now that uh, Uncle Wally was only seeking a better life in his tender young backside. The jobs migrants can get are the main incentive. And many of those jobs are in Texas and other Republican-controlled states. Yeah, they're, they're only, they only want jobs, except for when they just want uh, astronomical amounts of welfare. So they're just astronomical rates of welfare dependence, not just in the first generation, but in the second, third, and fourth generation from many countries in Latin America. It's not like, oh, the first generation comes in and the second generation is more prosperous and the third generation more prosperous. No, there's a steady decline for many immigrants from Latin America. They become less prosperous, more reliant on social welfare spending and essentially become less productive, less useful citizens. We are talking about human beings here. Oh, so we're not talking about human beings when you have illegals 
uh, flooding into Texas. That's not human beings. When we have illegals flooding into Florida or Arkansas or Alabama or, or that New Mexico, we're not talking about human beings. We're talking about human beings, whether we have illegals in Mexico or in Texas or in Florida or in Martha's Vineyard, right? It is flatly grotesque and inhumane to use humans, especially extremely vulnerable ones, as pawns in a political game. So Obamacare, right, transfers $2 trillion from productive citizens to less productive citizens, right? That massive subsidizing of antisocial behavior that Democrats typically engage in, that's not grotesque and that's not inhumane. What, what part of politics is not grotesque? What part of politics is not inhumane? What part of politics does not human beings, does not use human beings, especially extremely vulnerable ones, as pawns in a political game? Isn't that virtually all of politics? Like, please correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I, I'm missing something. This is made worse by the fact that Ron DeSantis was stoking fears about secret flights when the Biden administration was moving underage immigrants around the country to alleviate pressure on border states. So why is it made worse, right? The Biden administration is flying illegal immigrants all over the country. Like, what is bad about mentioning that? This makes it sound like the Biden administration is just dumping migrants around the country in some nefarious secret plans. Some nefarious secret. Well, the, the Biden administration is not defending our border. To me, that's nefarious, right? So to me, the Biden administration's border defense policies are nefarious. Like, uh, uh, on what perspective are, are the encouraging of over a million illegal immigrants a year under the Biden administration is not nefarious. Now, this political scientist says, I fully understand that DeSantis is just stirring the base. Well, isn't that what politicians do? They're either stirring the base or they're trying to bring in people who are undecided. So he's saying that uh, water flows downhill. Trying to talk about actual policy solutions is almost pointless. Well, guess what? The Trump administration essentially crushed illegal immigration. So, yeah, I want to talk about actual public policy solutions. Let's talk about them. Let's go back to doing what the Donald Trump administration was doing during its uh, last nine months in office. Right? Donald Trump essentially ended illegal immigration in 2020. So let's go back to doing that. Dumping human beings in various liberal-leaning states to basically own the libs for TV purposes is grotesque. Oh, that's grotesque, but allowing the Biden administration to dump human beings in various conservative-leaning states, that's not grotesque? Again, these are people. They are poor. They have brown skin. They don't speak English. Doesn't make them okay to treat them like objects. Guess what? We all treat people like objects. There's no other way for government to function, for politics to function, than to treat people like objects. I thought this guy's a political scientist, right? All his mates on the site are political scientists. There is no other way for a bureaucracy to function, for a government to function, for a large state, a medium-sized state, or a small state, than to treat people like objects. 
The government doesn't get to treat people on an I-thou basis. It doesn't work. That's not reality. I would have thought this guy would have been wiser. So much of the base that DeSantis seeks to please are self-identified Christians. Yeah? So what? So to identify as a Christian means that you are suicidal, that you support the trashing of your country, that you want, you know, illegal immigrants, you know, flooding into your home. Why? Well, there's a verse in the Bible when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Oh, wow. So, boy, that really, that really shows Ron DeSantis. All the nations will be gathered before him. Wow. Just imagine that there are messianic dreams in Christianity and in Judaism that there are dreams that individuals and cultures have that don't necessarily comport with the way that individuals and cultures behave in the real world. I'm pretty shocked. I can't imagine that there are utopian sentiments in some cultures that do not 100% align with the actual policing policies in these cultures. If GOP politicians don't like to be referred to as semi-fascist, they shouldn't treat a group of people like subhuman pawns. Oh, so, so moving illegal immigrants from one part of the country to another part of the country, right? That's great when the Biden administration does it, right? This guy was just defending the Biden administration shifting illegal immigrants from one part of the country to another part of the country, and that's great. And to criticize that is stupid and wrong. But if Republicans move illegal immigrants from one part of the country to another part of the country, well, they are moving people like subhuman ports. So the Biden administration chooses not to defend our southern border, but they're not treating people like subhuman pawns. Uh, the Biden administration, when they shift illegal immigrants all over the country, they're not engaging in power moves just to score political points. This really is indefensible behavior. Ah, it's indefensible behavior when Republicans do it. It's perfectly defensible when Democrats do it, right? The Biden administration moves illegal immigrants around the country. That's good. Republican administrations in Texas and Florida move illegal immigrants around the country. That is indefensible. And it's just striking the, the overwhelming uniformity of uh, media reactions to this story. But this is not why I, I came here tonight. I, I stand before you. And, and I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to open up. Right? I want to let you in on a secret. I came before you because I want to build the world a home and furnish it with love. I want to grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like it to hold it in my arms and keep it company. I'd like to see the world for once or standing hand in hand and hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land. I mean, that's what I'm all about. That's why I teach the silent la-la-la. Right, so just check out if you've got any unnecessary tension in your neck or in your ankle. Like if you've got any unnecessary tension anywhere in your body, it's going to negatively affect your voice quality. I come to this show day in and day out to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony and to really sing to the, the best of our abilities. We have to let go of unnecessary tension. We have to get in touch with our silent la-la-las. And like, look at, look at my neck. Is this not a beautiful free neck? I mean, look at this. Like I'm... 
I'm engaged in deep, lofty thought. I'm articulating the most profound thoughts that have ever come to human beings. And yet I've got a free neck. I mean, see the width across my chest and across my shoulders. See how free my shoulders are. See that when I pick up a pen, do you notice excess tension in my wrist or in my fingers or in my arm? Do you notice any contraction in my shoulders? No, I'm, I hold my pen pen lightly, all right? No, no unnecessary compression or, or holding patterns, right? So many people... When they get a pen, they just grip it about as tight as they can be, and then they wonder why the, why their hand starts hurting. You really you want to do everything as lightly and easily as possible. I mean, do I come on here and just start bombarding you? Is Forty the type of bloke who comes on here and starts preaching at you? Do I come here and say, oh, you must do this, and I lecture you about that? No, this is a free, loving, open place, right? I hold onto my ideas as lightly as I hold onto this pen. When I realize I'm wrong, I just say I'm wrong, right? I don't, I don't have to grasp onto my ideas. I didn't need the protection of my ideology. I'm just here in a free, emotionally inclusive, loving space. And I share my delusions with you and you share your delusions with me. And I don't need to hold on to any of my points, you know, really strongly. I, I hold on to my ideas lightly. I'm just a flawed human being going through life at a certain time and place, speaking to you from a certain situation, you know, recognizing that you're you're the same. And I'm here to think about you know, how can real life human beings who have all sorts of drives and desires, like how can you know, we, we create a, a better world. I mean, not liking out groups is normal, natural, right? It's just kind of wired into us to want to feel superior to other people. I mean, conservatives, generally speaking, have concentric circles of moral duty, right? To themselves, to their family, to their community, right? Liberals tend to have, you know, skipping, <laughs> skipping, moral persuasions. They, they care about themselves, but then they care about Kenya, and then they care about Ukraine, but they don't necessarily have particular loyalty to the community in which they live. So you've got leapfrogging, frogging, huh, leapfrogging loyalties versus concentric circles of, of loyalty. But it's just wired into human beings to want a superior, to feel superior. So conservatives pride themselves in spotting potential signs of disorder and contagion. People on the left pride themselves in spotting ignorance and bigotry and racism. And so I thought I wanted to talk about how, how to be an adaptive racist, right? Rather, rather than be a maladaptive Nazi, right? rather than be a maladaptive bigot, now why not be adaptive? Right? Why not harness these, these basic human drives and pull them off? Hey, 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 cut that out. Cut that out. Cut that out. And, and pull them off in a way that uh, is much more adaptive, right? Makes things better for, for everyone. We, we can take basic instincts and uh, tune them up, turn them around, and uh, do, do something that uh, is not going to just destroy, right? But first, we have to recognize reality. So... 
Where's my timestamp here? Come on, mate. Peep Show, Season 2, Episode 2. A band isn't an army, but you need some organisation. Exactly my feeling. Exactly. I mean, democracy's all very well, but it's weak and it's decadent. You need a strong leader. Uh, I'm in character. Oh, uh, yes, yes, right, yes. The, the fatherland needs the, the Fuhrer. Oh, God, I'm even boring when I'm a Nazi. Jesus. Classic rubbernecker. Absolutely no interest in military history. Might as well be checking out fucking seed drills in a farm museum. <laughs> so, season two, episode two, Mark, one of the two main characters, has finally made a friend. And Mark's kind of antisocial. They're both uh, hilariously selfish people, fairly degenerate. But finally, Mark's found a friend, but he's a little taken aback because his friend turns out to be a neo-Nazi. Still, it's nice to get out of the city, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's nice to get away from it all, isn't it? You know, the work, the smog, the graffiti. Yeah, the traffic, the noise, the hassle. The car alarms, the cash points, the blacks, the packies, the Jews. Whoa. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what we all want, a, a racially pure nation. Exactly. I mean, all we're saying is England for the English, right? You mean Germany for the Germans? You mean... This is... Uh, are we... Rights for whites. That's not too much to ask, is it? it? Is this real now? We're on the same wavelength, right? Everyone thinks it. The difference is, we're not afraid to say it. Oh, shit. Oh, bollocks. Of course. I can't just make a nice, normal friend. Oh, no, that would be far too simple. Heil Hitler! Uh, Heil. You're not supposed to do that, Daryl. You know you're not supposed to do that. I've got to cut the link. Daryl is definitely beyond. So, rest of the money should be rolling in soon, which is just as well. <laughs> People are complicated, all right? It's not unusual that uh, your best friends may have very different politics from you. Obviously, the more you have in common, the better, but... Uh, or maybe I'm just overreacting. Maybe everyone does it now, and it's cool and Ali G, and I'm just an old stick in the mud as usual. Mark, like I said, sorry if I was a bit of a cockmuncher down the studio. Fine. It's, it's totally fine, mate. Honestly. Listen, I might pop... Just <clears throat> pop down the uh, chinky. Do you want another thing? Whoa. Uh, so at what level of racism or bigotry or neo-Nazi sympathies do you, do you cut ties with someone? Right. So obviously we're hearing some antisocial sentiments here. Right? This is not a good way. It's not an adaptive strategy for expressing your in-group preference. Right? You can strongly have an in-group preference uh, without destroying your life. No, I'm all right, thanks. What about from the packy shop? Do you want anything from in there? The packy shop? Yeah, I don't normally go there. They've always got that what box on. Mark, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, that's not on, is it? What no. I said, it, it's... No, so these guys are incredibly selfish, incredibly degenerate. But just like uh, that, that serial killer who just wanted to make sure you knew he's not a racist. So you can be, you know, any, you know, almost any degree of deviance, right? You can go to gay orgies and do meth and infect people with monkeypox. But as long as you're not racist or homophobic or bigoted. Not all right, is it? Not all well, right. No. Right. You can be selfish, right? You can be degenerate. You can give people AIDS and monkeypox and other sexually transmitted diseases, but 
you cannot be racist. And obviously you don't think there's a global Jewish conspiracy controlling everything. What, you mean, am I a racist? Yeah, if you think that and say those things, you're a racist, aren't you? Well, yeah. As it turns out. So people aren't this one thing, right? You can say something racist doesn't make you a racist, right? You can engage even in homosexual sex. Uh, you don't have to take on the identity of a homosexual. You can have an adulterous affair, but, you know, adulterer may not be your primary identity, right? This, this very human tendency to essentialize people by, oh, he's black or he's an adulterer or... You know, he sucked a cock, and so, you know, therefore he's as queer as a $3 bill. People are complicated, man. Daryl is a racist. You're sure he's a proper... You know, it wasn't just racist horseplay. Right, there's no such thing as racist, right? This is this made-up moral category that we've only had in the last 60 years, right? So for thousands of years... Right. Humanity got along without any such moral category as racist. Did the Talmud excoriate racism? Did Jesus excoriate racism? Was the Apostle Paul all concerned about racism? Were the, the great thinkers of the Islamic tradition particularly upset about racism? Were the major minds behind the Enlightenment, were they outraged by racism? The moral codes of other Middle Eastern peoples, aside from the Jews, were they particularly focused on racism? No, nobody ever talked about the evils of racism until the last 60 years. It's an entirely made-up moral category. No, because I was in the tent with him for ages, and we talked for a long time, and it was mostly on racial classifications, head measurements, and so on. Wow. So... Knowing things is bad, all right? Classifying things is bad, except for when it's good. So in many areas of science, making accurate measurements is considered a good thing. In many areas of life and in science and in business, classifying things accurately is a good thing. Ah, but when it comes to race, oh, therefore we have to overturn all the other rules where knowledge is good, where classification is good, where exactitude is good, where measurements are good, where precision is good, where empirical research is good, right? We have to ignore all that when it comes to race and also when it comes to, to murderers. So there's been a little research that shows a lot of murderers have a disproportionate amount of facial disfigurements. But you can't really study you know, the, the physical signs of, that someone is you know, more likely than than average to be a criminal all right you're not allowed to study the, the biological origins of criminality so when it comes to race when it comes to the biological element in criminality their measurements classification exactitude precision all right be, being scientific then that's a bad thing so most things precision is good but when it comes to race or criminality or certain other sacred taboo topics, then it's a bad thing to know, right? You shouldn't have knowledge. You shouldn't know about these things. You shouldn't think about these things. To even entertain thoughts, to even notice things, to be a noticer, to, to recognize patterns, that's evil. I feel terrible. Do you think I should 
confront him. You mean you didn't confront him? Yeah, no. Naturally, I, I confronted him, but maybe I should confront him again. More. Listen, the... Isn't that what uh, people find so annoying about Christians and other religious people? Right? What if patriots and traditionalists and Christians went around confronting people who were sinners, who lacked a strong personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who weren't born again, who weren't flag-waving patriots? Right? Why is it only people on the left need to go around confronting those who you know lack their their moral precision the truth is i can't be associated with you anymore because you're a racist <laughs> yeah but i thought we we're on the same wavelength you know the, the sausage the euro clarkson there's a difference daryl you can't hate people because of their ethnic background oh right political correctness gone mad no I hate political correctness gone mad more than anyone. I don't want to teach the world to sing. That, that would be horrible, but... I want to teach the world to sing. The, the Holocaust, that's, that's just not on. Whereas, I have a dream, South Africa, Benetton, it's... You've got to say, fair enough, yeah? Yeah. Okay, no. Fair enough, you've taught me around. I have? Fuck off. And of God's... Don't worry, we're not trying to kill him. It's just uh, he's uh, he's never had sushi before. He thought we were trying to poison him. It's all right, God, you're not... Ah, so it turns out that uh, that this Nazi, he, he's, the, he's the good guy in the whole story. Oh, shit, he knows. He knows it was me. He's got a pipe bomb in his trousers. Don't bomb me. You wouldn't bomb a whitey. Don't worry, I'm not going to embarrass you, right? I'm going now. I just wanted to say, I don't care what happened, I still think you're a bloody good guy. Oh, and I took the rap for the sausage as well, so you're in the clear there. So, um, well, I'll see you around, mate. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's Peep Show Season 2, Episode 2, where, where the, the Nazi turns out to be, <laughs> to be the, the good friend. All right, let me get my act together here. This is Christopher Anderson. This logic in my day-to-day -day life. Like, now that I know the truth, what am I going to do about it? How can I, how can I put this into action? Uh, and, and the reason that I'm so convinced, by the way, that, that Dugin is right is because if, if you look at, at the picture of what's going on around us in the world today, so many things that seemed confusing or illogical all of a sudden make perfect sense when they're viewed in this context and all the puzzle pieces fall into place. Such as, for example, um, the behavior of American liberals, well, hell, you know, liberals anywhere, may seem contradictory at first glance, and one wonders if these people are just crazy. But when viewed in this context, it begins to make a lot of sense. So, for example, I'll just pull an example out of the hat. Um, immigration policy in the United States. Uh, American liberals want to flood the United States with as many immigrants from Central and South America as they possibly can. Do American liberals like people from Central and South America? No, they hate their guts. They don't respect them one bit. They refer to them as Latinx, which, which they themselves find very offensive, but it doesn't matter if it hurt anyone's feelings besides a liberal. Only their feelings matter. Uh, do they respect the deep cultural uh, uh, traditions of people from Central and South America? No, they don't. They don't give a shit about that. Uh, uh, do they care about the family values of immigrants from, say, for example, Mexico? No, they don't. Do they care about the Catholic tradition of, of people from Mexico? No, they don't. They're, they're condescending towards uh, uh, immigrants from Central and South America. They force them to, to be gardeners and maids, and they, they constantly uh, patronize and talk down to them. So, so at first glance, it's very confusing. And it, it makes sense when you understand that 
all this is really about is destroying the collective identity of Americans and at the same time destroying the collective identity of, of, of Mexicans also. And basically what the globalists are, are trying to do is, is just turn humanity into one big undifferentiated mass, right? Where they, like uh, just generic uh, human beings, homogenous global culture, as it's called global homo. Um, and suddenly when viewed in this context, everything begins to make sense and the puzzle pieces fall into place. So um, with this in mind and energized with this new information, I immediately asked myself, what can we do about it? And it seems to me that the obvious answer is, uh, oh, and by the, by the way, I want to state at the outset, this workshop is in no way endorsed by Alexander Dugan himself. I don't know him. Uh, uh, hopefully he won't have a problem with it. If he does, well, whatever. Okay, here's uh, Kenneth Brown. Yeah. We bring up the United States uh, submarine fleet, um, blah, blah, blah. He does a separate thread where he addressed things, so I want to make sure that I cover this before I dig right into it. A lot of Americans virulently disagreed with my assessment, thought experiment of a war with China. One group said I was just stupid, but they didn't have the brains to tell me I was wrong. The other ones did give me rationale. Those were interesting responses. Some of the people said I was wrong because they pointed out the United States would use nukes immediately. This actually proves my point. The U.S. military is a paper tiger. They cannot fire, let alone defeat a Your competitor without immediately resorting to nuclear weapons. So basically they say, that's cheating. You can't do that. That's cheating. Another group insisted I was wrong because they could, said the U.S. would impose a total blockade on China. They don't seem to realize that was the point of having the Belt and Road Initiative for China to have another way to trade and get supplies in case of U.S. naval blockade. BRI is not complete, but it's close enough. The key issue is China's relationship to Russia. In a crunch, China could get Russia's fuel and food. After all, Russia is about to capture. Russia is about to capture Ukraine. So there's a lot of assumptions being made here. The dumbest of the criticisms was China's economy would collapse. Only in America do people obsessively focus on the economy and their material well-being. China being an ethnically homogeneous country has higher values than just. Mm, <laughs> that is such a low. That tweet alone is like, oh, chef's kiss. Like so many assumptions. Like, um. Like China, in China, apparently people don't obsessively focus on the economy and the material well-being. I'm going to need a fact check on that. And then China is an ethnically homogeneous country. You're going to need a fact check on that. And has higher values than money. I'm going to need a fact check on it. I need fact checks on all of these. Yeah, well, China is about 91, 92% Han Chinese. So I would say that's uh, fairly homogeneous. Thanks. I'm really, this, this tweet right here is like really, really far out there. Really a lot of assumptions. And we'll address it. Chinese people understand they're in an existential fight. They agreed with Russia's SMO, resulting in saying Russia phobia sanctions. You don't think it had an effect on the Chinese people. They are not stupid. Chinese people do not have anywhere near the cynicism and resentment toward their leadership that the people of the West have for theirs. We in the West do not trust our leaders, but they do, or at least trust them far more than we do ours. Some to agree with here, but but this is a dynamic situation. We've got to ask what would happen in case of a war. And in an existential war, the Chinese people would support their leaders. So long as they get food, even if it's rationed, they would support a war with America and accept severe disruptions to their lives. Americans who are soft and spoiled never would. Never would. Interesting. The key issue, collective solidarity. The United States has no sense of everyone being in the same boat. Diversity, immigration, plus the incessant identitarianism has led to a people who have zero collective solidarity. Americans cannot imagine a people who have it in spades. Thus, the people criticizing my threat insisted that the Chinese would never accept a broken economy as the price of an existential war. These are people, Americans, who very literally and explicitly value money over their lives. The Chinese are not like, uh, that, that is a question. We have to question this. Do Americans value money over their lives? Mm, okay, I, I have to doubt this. Because of the Chinese people's collective solidarity, they would accept whatever price necessary to win this existential war. They wouldn't care about a collapsing economy or even severe rationing. They know there are more, there are values more important than material well-being. What's interesting is we, we have an example within the last 70 years of what happens when the Chinese people are put under a wartime scenario. It was called the Chinese Civil War. And what happened is there was one side in that war which said we have to fight the external threat. We have to fight the imperialists. We have to fight the people who are invading our country. And then there was another group of the people. Who well, I think he's trying to talk about the 1979 China versus Vietnam War, where Vietnam kicked China's ass. So China hasn't uh, fought since really 1979 when they lost. So China hasn't uh, fought in, in a real war, a sustained war since the Korean War 70 years ago. Who said, who cares about those people invading our country? Who cares? Like, we're not, like, who cares about them? 
we need to solve our, our internal problems. And so the, the communists were the one who were actually fighting the Japanese. The uh, Chinese nationalists, who are actually the Kuomintang, are actually in, in Taiwan today. They were the ones saying, oh, we need to figure out this communism thing. Who cares about the Japanese? So obviously the Chinese communists won on the basis of we have to fight these invaders. But it is, it is not so clear-cut. It is not so one-sided historically that the Chinese, in the event of an invasion from a foreign power, simply unites as a people behind one leader and fight with one vision and one will. Historically, China's been invaded many times by the Manchus, by the Japanese, by all kinds of different powers. And historically, they don't just solidify into one fighting group, one ethnic group. Now you Yeah, I'm just uh, reading a book on the history of England, and it was talking about how England was often a vassal for other powers, that the Viking Vikings came in, raped and pillaged and set up shop. Then uh, the Romans took over southern England under Julius Caesar. Then the Normans conquered under Norman the Conqueror in 1066. So for centuries, Britain was ruled by foreign powers. And then from the 16th century on through the 20th century, Britain was threatened by Spain, by France, and by Germany. So I know on the distant right, there's this big controversy between Richard Spencer, who believes in empire, and Greg Johnson, who believes in nationalism. But the situation is the boss. Sometimes an empire is the most productive way to go, and sometimes it isn't. Right? Sometimes situations encourage the building of empire, and sometimes they don't. You could say the situation is different because China has been carrying out a deliberate plan of genocide against all its ethnic minorities for the last 70 years. And I would say, yeah, that does give us a different template. But historically, this is not something that we can just take as a 100%. Finally, there are critics who said I was completely wrong because the United States military would defeat China with submarines, aircraft carriers, pointed to China's 1979 defeat by the Vietnamese as proof as Chinese military enough to do that was 43 years ago. Morons aside, those is... Okay, he doesn't seem to address this paragraph at all. Morons aside, those insisting the United States military would defeat China are absolutely wrong, 100% wrong. How do I know they're so completely wrong? Because the United States military proved that they are wrong. In every war game that the United States military staged for the last 15 years, Team USA loses to Team China. In the last series war game, the referees imposed limitations on Team China's tactics. Team USA wonder weapons that don't yet exist. Only then did Team USA win the war game, which proves my point. Okay, Kenneth, Kenneth Brown isn't bringing anything to this. I mean, I just uh, played five minutes of him and... Uh, not much insight there. Sorry, that was a waste. All right, Steve Saylor has an important column here, September 14, an end to conquering. So the success of Ukraine's surprise northeastern offensive suggests a fundamental problem for the invaders. When it comes to seizing and holding land in Ukraine, the average Russian soldier's heart just isn't in it. Well, why should it be? After all, unlike Patrick Swayze's gorilla in Red Dawn, who says, hey, we're fighting because we live here, the poor Russian doesn't live there. That the modern male is less interested in conquest than his progenitors were, seems like a general pattern. Men will still fight bravely for their homelands or for what they see as a good cause, but less so to simply raise their flag over their neighbors' fields. I've been arguing for most of this century that the age of wars of conquest is drawing to a close. Why? In recent generations, the payoff from militarily subjugating foreign lands has been typically less than the cost. I had assumed that Vladimir Putin's cold-blooded rationality would cause him to stop short of starting a major war. So I felt pretty stupid on February 24, 2022, 
But now appears that not all the Russian troops got the memo that annexation is back in fashion. So a millennium ago, if you were William the Conqueror, the profit to you and to your Norman allies from conquering England was considerable. You took the Anglo-Saxons lord's land and you took his serfs. Today, all these centuries later, your descendants, Englishmen with Norman surnames, are higher class on average than those with English surnames. So the medieval view tended to be that somebody had to be the lord of the serf, so why not me? This led to frequent wars, including England's 15th century War of the Roses, the basis for the Game of Thrones and House of Dragon TV series. Wow, House of Dragon is so bad. It is such a doubter. It's such a bore compared to Game of Thrones. It doesn't have any of the good qualities of, of Game of Thrones. I found House of Dragon, House of the Dragon, just a dramatic letdown. I, I mean, I'm still watching every week. It's obviously high production value. I, I keep hoping it will get better. But uh, House of the Dragon, biggest letdown in 2022 for any TV show that I've watched. So medieval European aristocracy comes from the Dark Ages roving bandits. But when feudalism succeeded, nomadic warlords turned into less destructive stationary bandits. They became settled aristocrats with a self-interest in leaving more prosperous estates to their heirs. Slowly, the more Europe prospered, the more it could afford to arm and defeat larger militaries. But what would motivate them to fight? So nationalist and democratic ideas have begun to replace the feudal spirit. Joan of Arc, during the Hundred Years' War, was unimpressed by the English king's genealogical claim to the French throne. She insisted instead the English invaders should go home to their own island, leave France to the French. So it's increasingly come to be seen in poor taste for conservative militaries to steal a land from landowners. And industrialization means that fighting can go on longer. So seizing territory, other people's territory, just doesn't make economic sense anymore. So Hitler never seemed to realize that his Malthusian worldview had been rendered obsolete by the invention just before World War I of a process for manufacturing cheap nitrogen fertilizer. Germany didn't actually need vastly more land to support the growing population because agricultural productivity per acre was growing so fast. And that may explain the decline in our hunger for conquest. We're just not hungry enough anymore. Some great points there by Steve Saylor. Now, Andy Nowicki is making an earnest plea to the Anti-Defamation League on behalf of his friend Colin Liddell. An earnest plea to the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. Dear ADL, I would like to make a most earnest, most sincere plea that you remove my former compatriot, Colin Liddell, from your list of infamy. It's really not fair that he still occupies uh, a position uh, on this, this, list, uh, this list of infamy that you compiled back in 2017, this hit piece that you uh, had one of your writers compose from alt-right to alt-light naming the hate. You should probably take that fellow off, too. Uh, but, uh, but I'm just going to focus particularly on Mr. Liddell. Okay, so, so scroll down. So they, they start off by talking about who's on the alt-right and who's on the alt-light. Uh, this, was, this was, again, back in 2017. Uh, listed in alphabetical order by first name for some reason. So as you can see, I am the third one listed, um, a.k.a. the nameless one. And I have not been such a good boy. Uh, so I... I 
fully deserve to still be on your list of infamy. So I'm, uh, I'm not going to uh, make any uh, pleas on my own behalf. But I do wish, dear ADL, I do wish that you would remove Colin Liddell from this list. He really doesn't deserve to be there anymore. Over the last year, he has shown himself to be a worthy ally of the neoliberal dogma, which is favored by the ADL, of course, uh, which, which it should be, of course. Um, and I'm speaking on Colin's behalf here just because I know he, he's too humble to speak on his own behalf. He doesn't, he wouldn't want to come forward and do this for himself. But so, uh, so as a good friend, isn't that incredibly thoughtful of Andy Nowicki to, to do that? So what's the, going on well, with uh, Vladimir Putin? If you Putin? don't have a synergistic triangle between the armed forces, the population and the government, then things t- start to collapse and you can't campaign. Wow, I'm worried. I'm worried that Russia is not, all the different parts of Russia are not singing from, from the same prayer book. I mean, is the Russian military... You know, aligned with Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, and with Russia's media, and with Russia's elite, and with Russia's people. I, I just fear that the Russian empire is collapsing. They're not singing from the same prayer book. I mean, won't you pray for Russia, please, before it's too late? To some of our leading tactical and strategic minds about the latest developments in the war in Ukraine. Today, let's welcome Major General Chip Chapman, former senior British military uh, commander. Chip, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, John. Hi, and also let's welcome Dr. Domitila Sagramoso, the Professor of Russian Foreign and Security Policy at King's College London. Domitila, hello. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's good to have you here. Chip, can I start with you? And just, if I can, just place you on the spectrum of, of, uh, of uh, a strategic opinion here. Because yesterday I was talking to one of your US uh, former military colleagues, Dan uh, uh, Ben Hodges, a former Lieutenant General in the US Army, and he, he felt that the, the Ukrainians had now attained... And uh, questions from the chat. Luke, do you have any regrets with regard to your incredibly lazy interview of Andy Nowicki? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the, the best interview I've done. I, I could have done it done it better. Uh, Luke deliberately went after Andy with personal insults. Yeah, Luke deliberately quoted Andy back to Andy. I mean, could there be anything more insulting than to quote a man back to himself? My God, how did I do that? Uh, do I miss Otto? Sure, I miss Otto. It's very hard to maintain. Uh, comrades and and fellow streamers when when you're talking about hot button issues so uh, i i could could operate one of two ways one is i could always make sure i was aligned with my audience and with the people that i i brought on the stream and not contradict them not quote them back to themselves not put them on the spot uh pull my punches so that i could maintain social cohesion with my audience and with the people i bring on the stream or i could say what i believe to be true and when i disagree with people say that i disagree and when i feel compelled to challenge someone over something i can challenge them but that comes with an enormous price you lose a lot of social solidarity you lose your audience because you're not giving your audience what it wants to hear if i was just giving you reliable right-wing talking points right i'd have a much larger audience all right people turn to live streamers and pundits generally speaking to have their own prejudices reinforced and if i wasn't challenging people that i'd bring on my show then i'd have a lot more people on my show if i treated them much more tenderly 
didn't ask them awkward, upsetting questions, if I restrained myself from disagreeing with my audience or with the comrades on my show, then it'd be a lot easier to keep them around. So community, social cohesion, and freedom are intention. So I value my freedom. I value the ability to say what I believe. Uh, KMG said you were never his friend. We had a working relationship. We didn't have a personal relationship. So I don't form personal relationships with everyone that comes on the show or even people that I work together for years. Some people that I work together with very quickly, we form a personal relationship and I chose not to form a close personal relationship with Kevin. We had a pretty solid uh, working relationship and uh, there, there are some people, you know, I've had roommates where we just had a, a kind of a distant relationship, but cordial. And then other roommates where we had a close personal relationship. So you have to make choices. So I know Elliot Blatt says, man, you're, you're always going after your own team. You're always going after the right wing or you're challenging people who've been on your show or you're criticizing or you're disagreeing with, with people who come on your show. So yeah, I, I make a choice. Right. I so value my, my freedom to think and to speak, and those are related. Right? When you restrict your freedom to speak, it restricts your thinking. Like My thinking has been affected by my conforming of my speech to YouTube's terms of service. You are an odd duck. Even my mom said your voice was disturbing. Oh, my God. With all due respect, you just didn't read Andy Nowicki's book. No, I didn't read his book. I, I read it afterward. Otto likes Andy more than you. Uh, I had a partnership with Kevin Michael Grace for almost two years, but it was a working relationship. I chose not to make it a, a personal relationship. Henry says, I respect Andy for his writing and his analysis of books, films, and music. I don't respect his political perspectives. Luke, are you worried about never getting married? No, I'm not uh, worried about that. Luke is from the Musa movement. Well, I've probably been affected by the uh, the Musa movement. Collins' takedown of Andy was, was funny. Andy was disrespected by Luke. Uh, Otto hates Luke. Yeah, Otto does hate me. And I, I guess it stems from I, ma I made some mild criticisms of his attitude towards work. And that must have really stung. So, I mean, I just had the the uh, uh, mild temerity to question things that he said publicly. So I wasn't taking, you know, personal things that he'd shared in confidence with me. I wasn't taking any uh, shots at his private life. I only made commentary on things that he said publicly. And uh, if, if people object to me making a criticism of them, then, uh, then I mean, he can, he's welcome to, you know, build his anger. So he does, does display, you know, absolute loathing for me. And it's kind of weird because, uh, I, I can't think of anything I've done aside from make some uh, moderate criticisms of his attitude towards work. What he called an irreversible momentum in their favor in this war. First of all, do you agree with that? 
Yeah, I think so. From a military perspective, we like mission verbs, and the mission verb for defeat is to render an enemy incapable of achieving its objectives. So if you took both ends of that spectrum on the maximalist side, that Russia wanted to take over all of Ukraine, you'd give that a cross. And if you looked at the minimalist side, um, you know, what Putin said really on the sort of 23rd, 24th of February, that he was invited into the Donbass and it was uh, to prevent genocide and it was a peacekeeping operation, I don't think he's going to be achieving his minimalist objectives if that were the case in Luhansk and Donetsk. Mm. So he is heading for a strategic defeat, but... In the bookends of war, how a war finishes is more important than how it starts. Yes. The difficulty is getting to conflict termination and then yes. ultimately conflict resolution. And I really want to hear your thoughts on how that might happen and what it would look like. But, but Domatello, do you then take the same view? Uh, we're looking at irreversible, irreversible momentum in favour of, of Ukraine and already a strategic defeat for Russia. Do you believe that? Well, I think it's, it, it seems very likely at the moment. I mean, the advancement continues and the Russians are in a position that they have uh, they have very much exhausted themselves. They have problems with uh, manpower. They have also problems with equipment. The morale is very low. Uh, there is a lack of coordination among the various forces that are participating in this operation. Uh, there isn't a clear sort of uh, strategic objective that was defined by Putin. It was changed many times. First, it was to uh, take uh, most of Ukraine, then take a part of it. I mean, it's all these sort of moving targets make it very hard to mobilize uh, fighters. Also, when, when there is a sort of a perception of, of being in the, on the losing side, there's a tendency to feel that there isn't really a reason why to continue fighting. Mm. So as we know, you know, wars are always sort of a, a, a contest of wills. And I think in this case, this is very important. And yeah. uh, having said that, I would yeah. just like to add that for Putin in particular, he's not going to give up easily. And I think he's going to try to muster more forces. He's going to try to build in some way additional forces that he can send. Uh, and he's probably waiting for the winter uh, in Europe to see how European countries are going to react. So I wouldn't think that now this is going to be very, very quickly resolved in the short term. Right. So let's look. So where did the Roman Empire fall? The Roman Empire fell because countries that were attached to it on the margins found that on the margin there was a greater price to be paid than a benefit to be gained from belonging to the russian empire i think the same thing will happen to the russian empire right various countries connected will, with russia will realize that uh, the price of being connected to russia exceeds the benefits and you can say the same thing about the American empire. If becoming an American ally exceeds the benefits of becoming an ally, then more and more countries will switch away from... Hey everybody, Peter America. Zion here coming to you from Montreal, where I am by a chunk of the former Berlin Wall, which meant that I thought it was a wonderful time to talk about the collapse of empires, specifically for the Russian one. Now, as everyone has seen in early September, the Ukrainian counter-assault in places like Kyrgyzstan and Kharkiv and Donetsk and Luensk has been <sighs> historic. It's going to be a few weeks before we really have an idea of just how successful the Ukrainians have been. But to give you an idea of scale here, uh, the Ukrainians have captured more Russian equipment in the last week than the rest of the world has given Ukraine in terms of equipment in the last six months. And the captures have been so holistic that the Ukrainians have been able... So how is the Ukraine war like the COVID crisis? I mean, it has resulted in the humbling of all sorts of very assured pronouncements, all right? During the COVID crisis, I wasn't uh, particularly strong on one side or the other, just kind of steered a centrist path, recognizing that, that maybe the lockdown restrictions, you know, that there may be good reason for it. Uh, but also reading criticism of the lockdown restrictions. I came around to being very pro-vaccine when that came out. But all sorts of people with very confident views on Ukraine and on COVID have been humbled in many different uh, directions. So let's say hello to Duvid. You've been interacting in the chat. You've been watching. Is there anything that you've heard tonight that you want to comment on? 
Uh, yeah, you covered a lot of issues. Like I, I prepared to uh, talk about uh, your know, racism. I guess uh, the when when is racism uh, good or bad? You covered a lot of uh, things, kind of like the alt right, uh, auto poll maintaining internet friendships, working relationships, whether uh, you you become friendly with the associates, and, and certainly you know that's something uh, yeah I've thought about and mentioned quite often. And then like you know business that uh, I don't mind working together with people I don't like, and more productivity. When I work together with people, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of people in business that have uh, made bad decisions by uh, choosing, you know, people that they like as opposed to who are productive. I think we've even talked about that uh, in the past. And then, you know, I, I'm not much of a Tucker person, but, uh, you know, I see the recurring theme of violence and immigration and uh, you know those are huge issues you're the one who turned me on to uh how important immigration was because like generally i'm still pro-immigration but uh you know certainly you that uh you turned me to realize uh how important immigration you know is to the fabric of america yeah a lot, a lot of different topics that we could uh, pick up on but maybe we'll we'll tackle the the topic of uh friendship and it's it's you have to use very good judgment on who you bring into your life i mean you you bring someone too close and they can absolutely upend your life because we're all incredibly vulnerable right none of us are protected and so uh there there are some people that i've worked with for years and had you know just an instrumental working relationship other people that I worked next to for one day and we we very quickly become friends so any thoughts on kind of navigating that when do you bring people into your life when do you become friends when do you deliberately choose to keep people at arm's length yeah I guess I mean certain relationships have utility and the friendship doesn't necessarily matter. You know, so like, you know, Duvid does a good job, shows up on time, you know, does what I say, um, you know, pays on time, pays in full. Yeah, I got a 100% seller's rating on uh, eBay, you know, you various things like in terms of working together, whether you like me or not, saying, okay, this guy's trustworthy to uh, do a good job, do do what I say. And that's pretty important. A lot of times friendships don't actually have utility. Um, although there is the concept of someone who's going to be there for you. So in the Jewish community, a lot of times also, it's not your friends who are going to be there for you. There's people in the community that kind of like helping people out that you could call and make themselves available. Uh, you know, ask kind of or however they might be referred to. So, you know, God forbid, you know, like your Hatsala volunteer or just the person in synagogue who's always setting things up. And you might not be friendly with the person, but uh, you might help you out. Versus when you're on the more fringe of the community or secular, you need friends to help you out because, like, there's really no one to help you out. Like, you know, if you're secular, like right now, I, I got no one to help me. Like, I got a few friends from a few years ago. Maybe I could call, but it's like, God forbid. I better not get sick. 
I better not, uh, you know, have my car break down or various things because I don't know who I'd call uh, for help because it's a cold, dark world there. And so in New York, you had to uh, feed friends to uh, make sure that someone's going to be there for when you when you need. And that could include the investment of large sums of money and doing favors to others. Like, you know, there's many people that uh, I bought lunch for and food for hundreds of times. Uh, maybe not hundreds of times, but possibly. And you never, uh, never, you know, they never really did anything for me like that. But it's like if I needed something, they would be there for me. Like, okay, I'm moving um, or, or various things where I might need somebody that this person's like, I'll be there for you. I owe you, uh, you know, you're my friend like that. So, you know, you there in the big city, um, you know, I try to make myself independent here and then just say like, okay, I'll, like if I need help, I'll pay somebody. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to get uh, things for pay or the expense. Like if you need, you need someone to do moving for you and you have to pay, it could be like $50 or, or a huge, a huge price. And even my friends, if I can, I'll usually pay them. Um, but uh, I, mean, I don't know if uh, you know you feel that like in LA, where you've invested huge amounts into people, largely just so they'll be there for you. Wow, that's uh, that's a great question. I I'll start by just saying I kind of envy those people who who have never lost a friend. So there are people like Dennis Prager. He claims he's never lost a friend in his life. So I, I envy that. I have found that I've lost friends frequently when I simply take a controversial position and or I, I choose to write about something and, and people disapprove. Uh, so I guess the, the burning core of my life for about 25 years are the friends that I have in Orthodox Judaism. That's my substitute family. And so I have friends in Orthodox Judaism who I've retained since I moved to Los Angeles in March of 1994. So that's, that's the most important part of my life in, in Los Angeles. When, when I go back to Australia, I have friends there from childhood and I have family and relatives. So that's then becomes the, the most important part of, of my life. But the, the relationships that I've built up from 27, 28 years living in and around Beverly Hills I mean, th these are people that I sometimes see in synagogue every day that we've, you know, attended uh, Torah study classes, you know, dozens, hundreds of times that we've uh, prayed together, that we've uh, volunteered together. We, we've brought meals to people. Uh, we've, you know, served in, in various uh, positions in the community together. I mean, that's, that's the most important part. Now, I, I value those friendships and I value community but I also put a tremendous value on my freedom of expression. So I've kind of allowed, allowed myself to say almost everything I want to say, right? There's very little that I've just held back from saying. But with regard to my, my Orthodox Jewish community, I do take a little more care in how I phrase some things to you know, maintain these most important relationships. So by, by taking more care and phrasing things and you know, deliberating on, on how I say things, that, that's, you know, perhaps a price that I pay for uh, having, ha having a very, you know, pleasant, familial relationship with uh, Orthodox Judaism. But I, I do recognize that e eternal tension between freedom to, to say 
what you think and, and believe and also maintaining community. And I kind of try to steer towards a middle road. I give up some freedom for community and I give up some community for for freedom. So yeah, I've lost you mean, friends. Like I mean, because we're in, we're like YouTube friends, mm -hmm. but uh, I mean, you mean like controversial political stuff, or you mean like uh, personal stuff? Like you have a habit of blurting out um, upsetting things, like you know, like uh, are you putting on weight, or like you know, like I've noticed you're losing some air, or uh, you know, like you know, God forbid, your wife's a real pain. Or, I mean, you're talking about personal stuff like that that you you have a hard time. Uh, um, I, I did have or a are you hard talking time. about your political views. Yeah, no, I I did have a hard time with some of the, the personal stuff about uh, 25 years ago. I, I But uh, that hasn't been as much of a problem over the past uh, 20 years. But no, I'm talking about the things that I write about. So, for example, I lost all my friends in Los Angeles when I decided to write a daily column on Dennis Prager. They, they thought it was a tremendous betrayal of Dennis Prager's friendship. And because Prager was you know far more prestigious and influential, they they all sided with him and they all turned their back on me. So I, I lost about 15 friends, every every friend I had in Los Angeles, simply because I wanted to write in, in an objective way about Dennis. And before I made that decision, I remember I was part of a, I think, a Facebook group where we discussed Dennis Prager's radio show. And the one time that I made a criticism of Dennis, the the first time I ever made a criticism of Dennis, like he objected to it. He said, you know, I get enough criticism on my show and with regard to my show, I don't need my friends criticizing me. And so I realized that if I was going to discuss things that Dennis Prager said on his show at all, that I, I essentially couldn't do it unless I was just willing to be a Prager lackey, a Prager fan. And so that, that possibility was just a way to... Uh, discouraging or daunting for me. It's like, no, I'm not going to limit myself to never saying anything critical about what Dennis talks about on his, his radio show. And so I had to, I had to suffer the loss of all my friends in Los Angeles because I wouldn't put up with that stricture of, I could never criticize anything Dennis says uh, publicly. Yeah. Okay. I lived in New York for years. I assume in LA, you know, and saying like, I mean, you're pretty open about your lack of, uh, financial success and probably like me you've trained yourself to be largely self-sufficient but what about you just the necessity of having people uh there for you if it means like you know couch couch surfing uh needing to borrow a little money someone to pick you up from uh the airport uh I, i've never was... thought of myself as self-sufficient i've always had a very keen awareness of how i need people for possibly those things. And I have had people come through for me. Uh, when I was moving about uh, 12 years ago, I stayed with one friend for a week and with another friend for another week. And I think it was the first time either of them had had someone ask, you know, can, can I stay with you? Because I couldn't afford a hotel. And so... Was it out of the blue? Or saying this was a friend that you had maintained a relationship and you knew that like you did things for them and that they would very likely, uh, you know, do things for you. And like, okay, I lived in New York and I had countless, you know, tens, maybe hundreds of people stay in my apartment a day or two. I'd lent money, given away money, you know, given a meal to, uh, I gave rights to thousands of people and, uh, you know, various things that you know, like, God, thank God 
I did a lot more for other people than I uh, needed help for myself, and it's better to be in that situation. But, uh, you know, there are a handful of people that I regularly ask for things. Um, I tried to not be that needy, uh, but, uh, you know, there are times I was needy, and I had friends where I was like, yeah, like, we've helped each other out so many times, and I've lost touch with those people or fell apart, or things could break the relationship, like, you know, if you're in the Dennis Prager clique and you say something bad, or, or a lot of times in Judaism, like, the, you know, the, um, you know, if you're part of a synagogue or a group together and you're no longer part of the same group. Uh, but, you know, I would assume in L.A. that it's important to have maintain relations and you have to use what you have. So if you have money, you might, uh, you know, use money to say, well, I know you don't have that much money. And, uh, you know, I bought you lunch a hundred times. And, you know, so when I move or, or something like I expect you to help me. And it could also be like, uh, you know, porn or, or like a girlfriend getting somebody into the party or, or something where, where, you know, like uh, there's some sort of, you know, just kind of like two Jewish boys uh, scheming and dreaming about the world who, uh, you, who are going to be there for each other. I don't know if that, you know, if you had your know, friends like that. I know you wrote in your book, uh, you know, God forbid, about the person who lent you money to uh, make your first porn video or something. God forbid. I'm just thinking from <laughs> what you put in your book. Yeah, I, I like I, I've really been disappointed when I ask people for help because it's been so, so rare. So those two people that I, I stayed with for a week, uh, th these were people I'd had strong friendships with for, for many years. Now, I remember my, my best friend in Los Angeles so he was the one I didn't lose when I started writing on Dennis Prager. Uh, he had really bad credit. And so I I got a credit card that I was responsible for, but he was going to use it and pay me back. Well, as you can imagine, he didn't pay me back. And so he ran off something like six $700 without paying me back. And I, I canceled his card. Then he became furious. Never has never paid me back the money t to this day. And that took a, pretty severe toll on our friendship. So I maintained uh, friendly relations with him for about another five, six, seven years after that. But that that really took a toll. And then other people who turned their back on me when I started writing about Dennis Prager, um, I resumed you know, a, a low level of friendship with them, uh, with, with some of them. Uh, but the last last painful friend that I lost uh, of which I'm, I'm aware a real life friend not talking about an internet friend who I've never met but I did lose a real life friend in 2008 and uh, this person said here's the feeling in my home I don't trust you my kids fear you and my wife hates you and so that was a very painful uh, loss of a friendship but I, I realized that it wasn't primarily about me that this was someone who had a, a fear of of friendship, and this was you know his own his own stuff in part, and and I, I'm sure there are things things about me in part. And then I remember I once only once have I had a girlfriend who had contempt for me, and I had a girlfriend for about a year. It just exuded just incredible amounts of contempt for me. She thought, for example, that I had uh, the you know very low pain threshold. And the physical therapist who was working with me is doing all this very painful manipulation said, you know, you've got a very high pain threshold. But because I simply mentioned to my girlfriend that I was going to the physical therapist, she, she just thought I was a wimp. And again, I was able to realize her loathing for me had to do with 
her childhood. It wasn't really about me. She grew up with a father who was incredibly sexually promiscuous, and she grew up where her, her Jewish father was banging all these Amazon blondes in you know, the next room in these very thin Manhattan apartments. And so she developed this you know, loathing and fear of men. So that those were two very painful relationships, but I was able to understand that the loss of those relationships was not primarily about me. Well, on the subject, you know, maybe put it more into business professional relations, you know, or bring it back to YouTube, but, uh, you know, think, okay, I did party promotion and, uh, even just in Jewish circles, not related to uh, business, there's a lot of networking and exchanging of favors, you know, just like Shabbos meals, like, you know, who on the scene is having guests and you'll tell somebody about, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, wealthy or prominent person that, um, you know, has a lot of Shabbos guests and would probably have you in exchange information, you know, like Schnorr's exchange information. And then, you know, certainly on the party scene, like connecting people to uh, contacts, you know, if it's, uh, you know, music promotion and, uh, you know, club owners or bands or studios or any various things where it's kind of known like, okay, I'm giving you this contact and that's a favor. I, I you know, mention on my stream pretty often, you know, God forbid, when I day trade, I had this roommate who was making a lot of money. He was pretty generous. He'd buy food for everybody and hook people up. But occasionally he would want a favor. And every time he did, he would like guilt you and he would list every single time he ever did something for you. Like I bought you food that one time. I gave you a ride that one time. How dare you not do this for me? And like, it's got to be like that in Hollywood and like, you know, so like networking, if you're like, Oh, you got the, I don't know if you like, you know, cell numbers or emails, or can you put me in contact with this person where maybe you're not even friends with the people, but uh, you know, there's just this. That's never happened to me. That's never happened to me. I've never, I've never said to anyone who can't help me out or come through with a favor. Look, I did so many things for you. Why can't you help me out? That's just never happened. I mean, people have said no to me, but I guess my Anglo-Saxon reserve, I would never, uh, never point out, look, I've done X, Y, Z for you. And on the other hand, I, I can't think of examples of where people have said, look, I've done so much for you. Well, yeah, I can think of a handful of examples where people have said, like rabbis have said, Plus, look, I read your book. You, know, read, you talk about yeah. how you, how you porn blogged. And you said it was basically a strategic exchange of information where you gave people information, they gave you information. It may not be like favors, but that's how you you know, you say you stayed on top of your game was by largely just exchanging information. People would give you information in return for you giving them information enough that you were a top blogger on the issue. Right. I, I think as as someone who's more genetically Jewish than I am and had more Jewish connections growing up, you may be more explicit about things that in my Anglo-Saxon reserve, I tend to make implicit. So I can never imagine saying to anyone, look, I've done X, Y, Z for you. Therefore, you need to do this for me. I mean, not that I wouldn't, but it, it's just hard for me to imagine. It's really difficult to imagine. Uh, on the other hand, there are you know a handful of occasions, like particularly rabbis who said, look, I, I've stuck my neck out for you or, you know, I, I'm asking you this as a personal favor. And so that I've usually succumbed, you know, whenever, whenever a rabbi has made that sort of appeal to me, I've, I've succumbed to it. But 
there's there's really explicitly been the kind of accounting that you describe and i think i'm pretty good at reading people so it it's fairly rare that i'm i'm surprised by someone well if it's implicit and you say okay you know, both me and you generally rolled alone but for periods of time when i was more active like you can't roll alone and so even if it's not explicit it's implicit that you got a buddy and you're both networking and you know trying to meet people and you're going to hook each other up and like i mean i assume that's how hollywood works and you know like you're making contacts meeting people getting into parties and if you work together with a buddy it's kind of implicit that you're going to uh share your contacts with each other well many of the the circles that i've i've run in doesn't quite work that way because I, I most of my social circles have been writers and unless you've you've reached a certain level of, of accomplishment in the writing world you can't you can't ask another writer out for for coffee or lunch i mean it's just considered absurd so for whatever reason you know many highly accomplished you know prestigious writers have viewed me as a peer and but if i had a girlfriend who who was very pretty but not accomplished as a writer when when she would try to network with the accomplished writers that that i knew they would look askance at it they would be they would think it was absurd they would they would consider her her a climber who who hadn't paid her her dues so my social circles primarily being writers and they would almost always have like you know certain levels of expectation for accomplishment before they would view you as a peer and so i couldn't i couldn't hook anyone up with my social circle of, of writers they were not going to you know welcome someone in who didn't have a body of work that they respected yeah i mean god forbid uh, you know i mean i mean you're thinking where there's like illegal activity like uh, drug use or sexual activity where people want to keep things private but uh you know, generally, I'm thinking in New York that it's extremely common that you're with somebody and there's parties and there's social things and you might get invited or, you know, know the person to just show up and you bring somebody with you, even like a, a Sabbath meal. And if you're saying writers are specifically different, where, where it'd be kind of weird to, uh, you know, just be like, oh, you know, I, you know, I brought this person with me. And, uh, but I mean, that... Isn't that pretty I don't normal? bring people along. That that's just not something I I do. Uh, hardly, Isn't that phenomenon pretty normal? I guess that, that is a normal thing, but I don't do it. I don't. I don't. If I'm going to a party or a gathering or a dinner or or a meetup, I'm not someone who brings people along. I'm not someone who says, "Hey, there's a Shabbat meal here that you could come to." That's fairly rare. Occasionally, I'll do it, but generally speaking, I would feel again, the Anglo-Saxon reserve, you know, I don't know whether the host would approve, whether the, the people that I'm going to be meeting would approve. So it's, it's fairly rare that I hook people up that way. Even there in Hollywood, you were more with writers, people that wouldn't, you really be that interested for people like, oh, you're famous, you want to meet them, that, uh, that you would even have power to, uh, you know, to be like, uh, you know, like I could introduce you to this person and, and in terms of the writing world it might be like finances like you like uh if you, you either have money or you don't you either have the writing skills or you don't so it's no advantage 
for you to meet this person. It's not like meeting an actor where you're going to, you know, get to post a selfie or brag to your friends. Well, often with writers, they'd want sources. So they'd want to talk to someone in the Jewish community who knows X, Y, Z, or they want to talk to someone in the porn industry, or they want to talk to, you know, a movie producer or someone I, I might know at the criminal underworld. So I've often helped out writers with the potential sources or contact information for, for people. So I, I help people out that way, but I don't, generally speaking, bring them along to gatherings if they haven't been invited. Yeah, but that's interesting. You know, typically I didn't either, but uh, um, I was brought along a lot of times. Um, and, and then, you know, when I actually got into promoting where you, you got to gather people, you got to sell tickets, you got to network, and it's expected, you know, because like you want to do big things you want to accomplish. And so you have an entourage. And we talked about this, you know, dealing with difficult people. And, uh, you, you know, the the more prominent you are, the more likely it is you travel with an entourage and the more leeway you're given. So like, you know, Luke Ford, the famous Luke Ford, you know, of course he's going to be arriving with an entourage. And uh, honestly, I have no idea who's in his entourage, but uh, you know, he's such a famous person that uh, you know, I, I will host whoever's in his entourage. I assume in you know, Hollywood, that's pretty normal. Uh, maybe, but it's not a, it's not a game I've played and I've, I've, virtually never had an entourage I, I i tend to have a small number of very in, intense close friends and i i don't have an entourage i have like uh two two or three really strong friendships in in los angeles and when i go back to say sydney australia i've got uh, another handful of, of close strong friendships I, I but i've never really had an entourage you think that might have limited your financial success even thinking like social events uh, traveling in circles where uh, you have people especially if you have business dealings with a person and your financial partners with somebody and then you bring someone with them it's like oh who's this person he's my business partner and you know certain aspect of why do you have an entourage because uh, he works for me and i'm not sure if you're thinking about that and you know god forbid you've mentioned your you know, one of your failings has, has been your failings and releasing your earning potential. If you think that's possibly related to. Yes, uh, definitely. Definitely. I don't, I don't tend to hook people up. I mean, I do it a little bit, but it's not one of my characteristics. I tend to like to keep people in, in separate compartments. So there are people that I live stream with, but I would never ask people that I dubbin with to, to come on a live stream and, I mean, there there are people that I work with, but I would never ask them either to come on a live stream or to come dubbing with me. So I guess I tend, I've always tended to carve my life up into separate compartments, and it's often made me feel awkward and ill at ease when people from various segments of my life suddenly all come together in one place. Have you ever had a business partner like that, where you were in regular daily contact with the person out of necessity of? managing your mutual business instincts no. or interests no never never had a, a business partner i'm not i'm not someone cut out for, for partnership i either want to be in charge or i want someone else to be in charge yeah i mean you like we could tie this back to even like tucker carlson the issues of the day or what we were you know t even talking about with the yeshiva and communalism jews are naturally adept at 
framing things of why this is your advantage and you know networking or uh you know turning things into uh mutual beneficial trade-offs um including business including you know like i said the you know, you know god forbid uh you know the guy i work for who met uh donald trump he didn't really care that donald trump was a celebrity he wanted to make money he wanted to get involved in real estate deals you know another guy he wanted to close a mortgage deal he wanted to meet donald trump so that he could convince him to use him as his mortgage broker and that he could make a deal and uh you know there's all sorts of connect connection networking party uh you know meeting pretty girls uh, get, getting into better social standing um but even all aspects of the Jewish community, especially the Orthodox community, because it's a mitzvah to help a person out with their uh, parnasa, that, that you would almost be, you know, like, well, I'm just help, trying to help this guy with parnasa. And, uh, you know, so there's always this, uh, you know, even call it a shotkin, like a shotkin who makes a marriage match, who makes a, a business match. And then, you know, the little arm twisting where, it could be pretty normal just to frame like, you know, what's in your interest to do this and even think like immigration, you know, your, your typical, you know, Jew, even me, uh, when we first started talking, it was like, no, no, you don't understand. We're going to bring all these immigrants to America and it's going to be in your best interest. These people at the border, you know, like it's in your best interest to let them in the country. And, you know, it's kind of a natural Jewish thing to do to just uh, be able to frame things uh, like, uh, you know, like, you don't understand this is in your best interest. Yeah, I, I think it's much more of an Anglo-Saxon thing to have people in separate compartments. So Anglo-Saxons more frequently, I think, have people that they work with than people that they socialize with and then people that they pray with and then people who share common interest in cricket and then other people that they share a common interest in painting. While While Jews are much more warm and much more hamish and much more friendly and like you know bring people together and so it's it's much more common that you know people that you may work with or for or, or who are clients you know you bring them to a shabbat meal and then you invite them to shul and you might you know go on vacations together and so jewish life particularly traditional jewish life is much more interlocking much more intense than the Anglo-Saxon world in which I was raised. Yeah, it's good for business. It's good for you know, net. It's good for networking, which is good for uh, your profit. No matter what your business is, you know, even your dentist, a doctor, uh, but especially uh, you know the professions like we're talking, like yeshiva alumni that end up in uh, you know fields where it's largely completely networking. Even you know the people in construction uh, management, life insurance sales, stock brokerage, mortgage brokerage. And even a lot of the top people don't really know what they're doing. I'm not sure if you know the business terminology. They have like, uh, you know, the whales and the hooks and the finisher. So if you're, you know, at the life insurance firm or the mortgage brokerage firm, you'll have the finisher. So the person's just, you know, he's got the uh, pizzazz, the sales, and he'll get the person interested. And once the person's interested, he'll have you talk to uh, you know the guy who actually knows what he's doing at uh, at the firm. Uh, you know, like if it's a mortgage or life insurance, who's actually going to give you the numbers or the details? And that also you know applies to an entourage. Well, why do you need the entourage? Because like I don't actually know what I'm doing. Like I'm just a big mouth who uh, 
likes networking, but uh, you know, it's this other guy that actually knows what he's doing, and that's how we make the money, and that's why we got to you know travel together. Yeah, how long will you put up with a Shabbat dinner that's boring, or someone at shul who's who's boring? So I bail from Shabbat dinners that are boring. I bail from conversations with people that are boring. I'll you know, just leave the conversation and pick up a book and start reading it. So I don't have a lot of patience for for people. How about you? Um, I've trained myself to be very patient, but uh, you know I'm multitask. I'll pick up, pick up a book or read. And yeah, I mean, generally I'm a loner. I try to avoid those situations. Um, but yeah, I mean, patience is something I have to work on and that would, I actively would have to uh, struggle with. Um, but like I said, like uh, you, especially when you're in the big city, you know, you're going to need people and you might even know what you're going to need those people for. And uh, you have to groom and invest in those people and if it's, uh, you know, you, if you want to be rich, you know, you have to, uh, you have to uh, get your geeky friends into, uh, you know, into the parties. You have to, you know, hook them up with a, with a girl. You have to, uh, you know, look out for them. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, skill in management to, uh, you know, knowing what type of people you need around you. And then keeping, uh, you know, keeping them uh, satisfied. And like I said, if you like, uh, it's probably something that has diminished your ability for earning uh, earning potential. And you think like, okay, like you know, God for if it's even imaginable that you know, if it's possible that uh, twenty years ago you could have got a life insurance, uh, you know, like a brokerage license, and this whole time that you were doing this other stuff, you were like selling life insurance on the side. And, and uh, but you know, stuff like that is always possible. And if you, you know, you think about uh, how you could have lived life differently or even in the future, that uh, you know, that's what it takes to uh, you know, to uh, run a business. And, and it's a drag on you that said, like, it's unlikely you would have been able to accomplish uh, you know, seeing or meeting all the people that you met if you were held down by business relations, if you had to call somebody every day and uh, you know, go over your. Uh, business interests. Right. I've had a lot of people say something similar to, to the effect that if, you know, if they knew all the people that I knew, you know, they'd be making millions of dollars. So I I am acquainted with, you know, a lot of, you know, powerful, prestigious, influential people. And it, it just goes completely against my Anglo-Saxon tendencies to try to monetize all the the social relationships that that I have. So yeah, a lot of people have commented work. that. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, if you were trying to, you probably, it, it would limit you. They probably, you know, cause when you're powerful or have money, you, you have to uh, weed out the people or compartmentalize your financial relationships. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm socializing now. I'm in synagogue now. I don't want to talk about business. It has to be compartmentalized. So, um, you know, it's probably a paradox or an impossibility that uh that like you know saying like no you wouldn't have uh been able to meet all those people if you had been monetizing and they wouldn't have been like the writers they want to talk to other writers they don't want someone trying to sell them life insurance on the side yeah so for me there are like 25 things that if i encounter that quality in, in someone else 
it then immediately becomes clear that I never want to be friends with that person. So if I notice someone, you know, just makes me feel uh, ill at ease or awkward or emotionally unsafe, then I don't want to be friends with that person. If someone's a, a drug addict or an alcoholic, I definitely don't want to be friends with that person. If someone's uh, dysfunctional in, in ways that could very well blow back on me, I don't want to be friends with that person. If someone's an under owner or a debtor and they're not interested in recovery in these areas, I, I don't want to be friends with those people. So there are all these like filters that I, I put up. And I think this is fairly common that we we all say no much easier than we say yes. And so I have these filters come up that when people make me feel unsafe or unhappy or in danger, even just emotionally in danger, that I very quickly decide, okay, don't want a friendship with this person. Uh, how about for you? Do you have like 25 filters up where someone pings them you very quickly decide you don't want to be friends with the person or how do you, how do you play this? Yeah. I mean, two main filters and I use the expression, you know, God forbid people who do stupid, stupid stuff for no reason. You use, I say stupid uh, S for no reason. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people who just engage in destructive behavior that has no benefit, uh, you know, lack in a basic, self-control that they just you know destroy something or you know like even litter or or hurt people just it's like well why'd you do that like there's no way that benefited you and it was destructive it could be in many ways like you know you take someone in your house and you know they're just gonna you know uncontrollably pick something up and then it's like oh did i break that is like yes you broke it you know like what you know and so that like you know like i'll keep it a, a severe distance people who have the habit of uh, you're doing stupid stuff for no reason and also people who constantly ask for things. Oh yeah. And, and when you're in the city, you can't avoid those people. Like in synagogue, there, you know, it's a sizable chunk, especially in the Jewish community. You know, maybe even like one out of four people have that characteristic trait, but like, you know, if you came to my house and, uh, or, you know, or, or, you know, even we just met that, uh, you know, just like, you know, you do it. Can I get 20 bucks or like, Oh, um, you got a lot of books. Like, can I just have that? And, and so there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, just like can't control themselves doing stupid things for no reason. Can't control themselves. They're always asking for things. And if it's uh, money, if, and a lot of times, like if, you know, coming to your house, they just, uh, you know, they want you to give them things. And, and so in those two cases, I usually will be, uh, you know, just the, you know, like you said, like non-starters. Um, I could put up with like salesmen or preachers that are always trying to convince you of something I don't want to be convinced of to a certain extent, like uh, for limited friendships. And like we were talking about the benefit of yeshivish people and saying like, uh, I have a lot of friends who are life insurance salesmen and mortgage brokers. And, and like every time I talk to them, they kind of ask me about, you know, if I want to buy life insurance or, you know, the real estate market or, or the various fields. And uh, so I value those connections and I'll put up with people like that. Like I have friends, like I said, they're life insurance brokers. And every time I speak to them, they try to sell me life insurance. Um, but I, I put that at a lesser level than people who ask for things. 
Right. I wouldn't be friends with a Nazi. I wouldn't be friends with someone who hated Jews. I wouldn't be friends with someone who was actively trying to convert me to Christianity. I wouldn't be friends with someone who tried to bully me from reading the New York Times. I wouldn't be friends with someone who frequently talked about putting people in ovens or gassing people. Uh, I wouldn't be friends with someone who's got, you know, an out of control hatred for, for out groups, or I wouldn't be friends with someone who's getting into fights. Uh, or, or someone who's particularly prone to feuding. Uh, I classify that like people who do stupid things for no no reason. Mm-hmm. If you put like a in, you know, people who are needy and ask for things, and people who do stupid things for no reason. And to some extent, I can handle people who are repetitive. Like, okay, if a person every time they talk to you, they're going to like hit me on my Hinduism. You're like, oh, by the way, mm-hmm. like, you got to stop doing that. Like, it's bad. And, okay, if it's, like, just, like, one mention uh, per meeting um, or, you know, like, the New York Times or something like that, I'm not sure if you'd have, like, a limit. Like, I okay, if you have a person that wants to modify your behavior uh, and they're consistent about it, that you could maintain a friendship within limitations, uh, you know, of that. Or, or I'm not sure if... You say you can't maintain a friendship uh, if they're just going to constantly be on you. And I, I'd include that, like, people are trying to convert me to uh, Christianity. Like, you could maintain uh, your networking friendship with people as long as it's, uh, you know, kept below a certain amount. Okay, I'm going to end it there. We've got a lot to talk about on the future stream. So thanks for coming on the show tonight, David. Yeah, I appreciate that. And look forward to if you're talking about the, you know, the, benefit analysis of uh racism when it when it helps you when it hurts you yep we'll do that uh, another night take care bye bye